Thank you for listening to the show. I hope it inspires you and expands your view of what's possible in your journey of wealth creation. My hope is that through a repeated exposure to the ideas and the guests you will find here, your view of finance will change for the better. With that said, there's an important caveat that must be stated. The opinions you will hear on this show are just that, opinions. Please don't misconstrue any of what you're about to hear as legitimate financial advice. Do your own research and don't take anything at face value. Understand that everything you hear on this show is someone else's experience that may or may not work for you. I don't know you, I don't know your situation, so I can't tell you what to do. But I can tell you that the one goal of this podcast is to make you richer, wealthier, and ultimately more fulfilled as a human. I'm glad you're here. Please rate it, review it, share it with the people in your world that matter. And without further ado, enjoy the show. So my philosophy has just always been, if I can add a lot more value than, you know, whatever I, I cost, or if I can add a lot of value to people in their lives that they'll tell other people about me, they'll kind of become a raving fan, hopefully. And you know, once I really got into tax planning, I mean, you know, you go and you save somebody, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars a year or mouth. Yeah, gotcha. Are you on Twitter at all? I do have a Twitter account. I'm not real active on it. You should use Twitter. Twitter is a good yeah. place to grab clients. Well, it's it's. I think that there's this thing called uh, FinTwit, and you go on there and you can look at like they call it like money Twitter or financial Twitter, and it's literally thread after thread after thread of people like you. And I feel like Twitter is this undervalued social network system. I would love to get you on Twitter active. It's one of the most undervalued platforms that I've ever discovered. Anyways, we can talk about that later. But if you're not on there, you got to get on there. Do you follow me on Twitter? Uh, I mean, I rarely get on Twitter. So I, I, I followed you on Facebook, I think. so. Twitter is better than Facebook. I'm just going to put it out there yeah. uh, for you. All right. Anyways, what is going on right now with the tax situation in Washington a state? Like, can you give me just an up to speed on everything that's happened year to date? Because there's all of this craziness that I've heard of, and I can't really get to the bottom of anything that's actually real. It's just people are freaked out yeah. because they feel like everything is like taxes are going crazy. Are they wrong? Not exactly. I, you know, there will probably be a change, and uh, it seems like it'll be something that happens here at the very end of the month. If you look back at, at when the last administration changed the tax laws in uh, 2017, it was the last week of the year that they voted on probably the most significant tax changes since uh, Reagan. And I don't know if we're going to get into a cycle here of every administration, you know, like the tax code changes every four years. Uh, that would be a, that'd be a lot to keep up with. But, you know, basically what's been happening is uh, Biden came out with, you know, this big scary plan of, of all these taxes and, and I don't know if it was just good marketing of like kind of setting an, setting a really terrible anchor so that whatever increases they did come with wouldn't wouldn't seem as bad. But you know, we, they were talking about five percent increase. Maybe they were talking about really jacking up the corporate rate. The House proposal that just the the, the latest proposal that passed the House, but it's in the Senate. You know, it left the corporate rate unchanged. So. I think there will be some changes, like the top bracket going from 37 to 39.6, potentially uh, putting the 3.8% net investment income tax on all of the kind of pass-through entity income, which what that really means, and I realize in Tennessee, they've got some weird 
you know, state tax laws there that are a little different than the rest of the country. But um, for most people, the advice has always been have an S-corp because you can just take a small salary with distributions and minimal income tax. But if they if they put that 3.8 through, then it kind of eliminates the S-corp advantage. And we might start advising everybody to go back to partnerships or other types of entities where they don't have to take salary. How hard is it to move something from an S-corp to a just a partnership or a sole proprietorship? It's not very difficult. Well, you're you're really just filing forms with the IRS to change your tax treatment. Gotcha. So we have um, a situation right now where it's like, and this is all like over my head for the most part, but we have a C corp that's supposed to own an S corp, but you can't really do that apparently. Yeah, S corps are supposed to have certain types of qualified owners. So generally, uh, corporations like C corps and partnerships are a lot more flexible on what kind of owners you can have. So you have a, you know, a certain qualified trust can own an S corp an individual can be an owner in an S corp, like a partnership can't be the owner in the S corp. So all of that planning might start getting flipped on its head. I mean, it, it on one hand, it seems like the government changes, uh, just keep all the attorneys and accountants in business, but we'll see. I mean, I, I feel like speculating on government changing, you know, Congress and what they're going to vote on and not vote on is kind of like speculating on the stock market or the weather. If we all, yeah, or the weather. Exactly. So I feel like most people that are prolific and proficient as you are in this game, they have exposure to like all of the different tools. It's not like they do one thing. They have to be customizable to the situation of the client. But do you have like a couple things that you like to do more than more than others, like irrevocable trusts or commodities or, or tax loss harvesting? Like, do you do a little bit of all of it? And if so, what's, what are some of your, I repeat this strategy the most often? Does that question make sense? Yeah. I mean, are we specifically talking about tax? Yeah. Taxes, and I would say also asset protection because you get into that too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in general, when I'm working with clients, it, it, it all starts with mapping out their cash flow and getting a good handle on that. But um, that's the foundation. That, that's what drives everything else. And then you look at things like risk management, asset protection, insurances, make sure all, all, all that protection is in place. You know, then you're looking at investments. And, and of course, you want the investments to be tax efficient and generally how you own the investments. You know, and, and that can affect legal planning. So then you start looking at estate and legal and all those structures. And tax is kind of all throughout. So with investments, you're looking at capital gains tax. With your business, you're looking at ordinary income. Usually with your estate, you're looking at estate tax. So it can change. But what I would say is the people I work for are self-made, successful entrepreneurs. Uh, The most common thing that I really see that gets repeated a lot, and this is just going to sound boring, but it's all the basic stuff. I just call it level one planning. I say there's, there's... there's basically about four different levels of tax planning. Level one is what I would just call good accounting, good bookkeeping, making sure you're claiming all the right deductions, that you're expensing everything you can expense. And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of savings usually left just in, in level one. It might save people 50 grand, 100 grand a year just in the basic stuff. And and I'm, I'm just kind of amazed at how, how there can be so many entrepreneurs, so many CPAs and it's not like the CPAs don't know this stuff. It's just people aren't getting the advice. So that basic, I mean, we're talking stuff like 
are you writing off your home office expenses? You know, are you, is your business using your home as a venue and can you, you know, writing that off? Like, are you writing off operating expenses for your pool and athletic facilities? What about deductions and depreciation and the new tax law from, from the 199A qualified business income deduction? These things are straightforward, basic accounting. And, and uh, so I usually start there because I feel like that's the easy, low-hanging fruit. I mean, that's the stuff you should start with. Because then once you start going up, like level two would be using things like where you kind of implement a plan, like some sort of qualified plan, like a defined benefit plan or something that that is going to have more administration and structure. And level three would be looking at things like setting up some kind of charitable trust, et cetera. And level four, I just think that's where you hit fraud and you go, don't, don't go there. <laughs> or go, go like 3.8. Go to 3.8, like right yeah, up to the line. Yeah, 100%. What are your thoughts on the real estate professional deduction? Do you use that for people in real estate a lot? Or are there some changes coming to that deduction? I don't think there's changes coming to it that I know of. But I, I think if you can qualify, it's great. I mean, you have to have at least 750 hours in real estate. And it has to be more time spent in real estate than any other profession. So, you know, 51% of your working time in, in real estate, at least 750 hours. So a lot of times, you know, if, if somebody's running a business, most entrepreneurs love investing in real estate. It's kind of like the, the their most favorite investment after their business. And so if you have a spouse that is not active and that spouse can then be the real estate manager and do all the real estate stuff, that spouse can then get the real estate professional designation and then you can you can use all the benefits of of real estate tax deductions against your active earned income. That's what we're looking to do now because I'm way over 750, you know, wealth capital real estate firm, like probably 25 hours a week, maybe 30 hours a week sometimes. So it's like, but that's I'm doing that a lot. But I also have W2s from other companies. And so I think that's disqualifying me from the deduction. So we're trying to figure out how to include uh, my wife more and have her qualify for that. It was like, some of this stuff is just a pain in the yeah. ass. It's just, it's like, okay, just give me the deduction. I'm obviously building and developing real estate. Why you got to do me like that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess people abuse it and then they make up laws that the rest of us get dinged for. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if you can get your wife to qualify, that's a great way to go. You know, that's where I think you've got to get really efficient with your wages and your compensation. And that's one of the things I'm always taking a look at for people is how are you paying yourself? How are you receiving money? You know, if you think about really wealthy, really successful people, they generally don't have W-2 wages or um, salaries or earned income. They're building assets. And if they need cash, they can sell some assets or more efficiently borrow against them and manage taxes that way. So in that vein on borrowing against, you know, that's like people have been doing that with whole life insurance and marketable securities. And now crypto enters the mix and you can do similar vibes with crypto. How do you feel about crypto as of right now? Because the IRS is coming after some of it pretty heavy. Yeah. And, and in the proposal, you know, they're going to want to have any um, transaction over $10,000. They're kind of looking at it almost like you would look at cash because cash isn't very traceable. So with banking regulations, any transaction over $10,000, 
has to have, have certain reporting requirements. And so they're looking at having those same reporting requirements and they'll enforce it not by the individuals, they'll enforce it through the platforms like um, Coinbase, for example. That's where the regulation will come in is, is in those types of um, spots. Um, I mean, as far as crypto as an investment, I, I mean, it's a it's like the Wild West right now. I don't, you know, there's a lot of different angles people are taking on it. Some people have made crazy money. Some people have lost a lot of money. I personally like investing in the kind of ancillary aspects of it. Like I think Coinbase is probably a good investment. It's kind of the leading, you know, platform for people to trade and exchange. So then you're not worried about which coin is going to do the best. It's kind of like, I'll, I'll pick that kind of technology or the thing that is, is goes along with it in tandem. Gotcha. How do you have any crypto? Yeah, I have some. I also have some, uh, I own some Coinbase, you know, so selflessly promoting it here, not for my own position. It's not like I'm a major stakeholder in it. it. What's really interesting is they just started rolling out some index funds and ETFs, which are going to make the ability for people to influence the price through like retirement accounts, 401ks, things like that. So that, that, I think that's going to be real exciting to see what happens. I feel like it's going to be such a fun decade, uh, the next 10 years. I don't know if you saw this, but the Lyft CEO or CFO, rather, Brian Roberts, left Lyft, joined OpenSea. So you've got Coinbase, who's starting the NFT market. I think that that's whipped OpenSea into kind of like, oh, we got to compete. Like there's some fresh competition coming in. And uh, man, it's, it's going to be so fun to see all of these companies hop into web three crypto nft market uh but at the same time i think a lot of people are relatively worried about it because they feel like the government's going to regulate the market to death but it sounds like that's not really happening they're just figuring out how to track it effectively so it doesn't sound like you're worried to own crypto you just know that there's got to be more regulation to come in so that the government can get what they they, they can get their piece yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. I don't think, you know, well, there's, there's two things at play. Currency is, is part of how a government exerts some of their control and authority and power. So I think the government would step in. I don't think they're ever going to allow it to get to a place where it could replace the dollar, placing the dollar. Then they just kind of want to get the taxes off of it, right? They want to get their capital gains. They want to get taxes on the interest. They want to, they want to make sure they're getting their taxes. Yeah, 100%. Do you see a, a digital dollar in the crypto space as a direct competitor? Like, will the Federal Reserve want to compete with Bitcoin? Or do you think it's like, no, it's different. It's a store value. We're going to have our own digital coin. Yeah, there was a proposal. Oh, gosh, when did this come out? There was a part put into a bill. It's not been enacted yet, but it was for the digital dollar from the U.S. government. If you think about it, the U.S. government hates cash the same way they don't like crypto. The government wants to be able to track and trace everything, right? They want to know what the heck is happening with money so that they can either, you know, take their piece or use it to, you know, whatever, fight crime or whatever they're trying to do with it, you know, regulatory wise. So they don't like cash either. So I think the government would like to get in, get away from a cash system and move more to a cashless system. So then they would produce the digital dollar that would operate similar to how all these cryptocurrencies operate. 
which is not that different than where we already are. If you think about it, you know, how much do you actually transact in cash? You know, most of it is with wires and credit cards and it's all, most of it's all digital transactions anyways. Yeah. I don't, I don't use cash. I'm not a fan at all. Maybe you grab a few hundred bucks if you're going to like, you know, Mexico, you need to have a feel a little bit of cash to pay somebody off, get out of, you know. Yeah. Dude, it's, it's just like I, when I talk to some people, it is uh, sometimes I have to like slow down and like I get frustrated when people are like, yeah, the government's trying to take everything, have cash, bury it in your backyard, build a fortress at your house, put electric shingles on your roof. It's like at a certain point it, that defies the utility of having money. You know, like it, it, what, there's a trade off that people don't look at the, the cost benefit analysis. Like, what's the point of being there's this thing on Twitter, which you got to get on Twitter. In these houses of beautiful mansions that are like 100% not off the grid, like zero chance. Like they're on the water with electricity and like they're in a city. It's like getting rich and then getting off the grid are the opposite things. What's the point? What's the point of being rich if you've got to hide? Thousand percent. It's like same with, I feel the same. It's like there's, there's these two camps. One is like a, a self protection primitive vibe and then you can also go to the other side which is just like yeah just the government can have me because they own me and it's like i'm kind of in the middle where it's like i want some form of autonomy of course like anybody else does but look i drive a tesla that the tesla could shut down and take me to the local post office if they wanted to yeah i just don't think it's as big of a deal as what people say which is why i think your bitcoin maximalists the thesis underlying what they're investing in, it might be a good investment because Bitcoin is 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 got it's got to grow. Like it's gonna get more and more valuable because the supply is going down, which inherently is gonna raise the demand. But I don't think that just the autonomy is uh, is utility enough to buy Bitcoin. I think you have to be plugged into the system at a certain point. It sounds like you would agree with that. Yeah. And there's some interesting things happening in that space. You know, literally what we just saw over the last week. The markets declined and everything that drove the markets down also drove about a 20% decline in most cryptocurrencies over just this past week. And, you know, there was this like saying about it being digital gold, meaning that it would it would be a hedge against downturns and it would be a hedge against the market, but it actually trended with the market. So that that's an interesting thing to see if this kind of notion of it being digital gold holds or not. And talking about the utility of it, talking to a merchant processor, a person in merchant processing um, services. And they said, you know, Visa and MasterCard process something like 30,000 transactions a second. And they said it takes Bitcoin about 30 seconds to process a transaction. So there's, there's some, there's some gaps there that would have to be overcome in order for that to have a daily practical use, like, like our credit card, you know? It cannot replace the utility of a currency trading for goods and services. That's where I think you'll will find different different forms of digital currency that will pop, prop up, but I don't see them necessarily competing directly with Bitcoin. This is interesting to talk about. How do you feel like when you look at global macro economics, is the US dollar in trouble or is this all pretty hot and heavy right now? Yeah, so that that's a deep question because I don't think a lot of people understand the history of world reserve currency. And so it wasn't until the 40s coming out of World War II 
when there was this Bretton Wood uh, agreement and there was this meeting of the European leaders and um, American leaders, they get together and um, basically the U.S. says, hey, look, we'll fund all of this European restoration. We'll kind of you know do all these things. We just saved you all. Um, but we need this one change. We need this change to where the U.S. dollar is now the world reserve currency and it's going to be pegged for all commodity pricing. And that, I think, single-handedly changed the course of the United States over the last 80 years. So now before that, it was the U.K., it was England, you know, Great Britain, the pound. That was, that was the, the reserve currency used in the world. We did a big case study on this at Harvard and... You know, I don't think it's likely that there's another currency big enough and strong enough to actually replace the U.S. dollar. And all of us as Americans, we better hope the U.S. dollar stays the world reserve currency as long as possible. Because all of the money printing that we're doing right now, part of the reason why that works is because, you know, things like oil are pegged to the U.S. dollar, right? So you have these these massive commodity markets that are pegged to the U.S. dollar. And and if it was all of a sudden pegged to the euro or something else, that would have a dramatic impact on the the purchase power of the United States uh, currency. So it's in all of our advantage if U.S. can retain the world reserve currency as long as possible. I think the euro is trying to kind of make a, a push to challenge it, but they've been having a lot of trouble there. You know, Russia's currency isn't going to be strong enough. China is not strong enough. There's really not another reserve currency that's strong enough. And I think the rest of the developed world really despises this fact about the United States because us being the world reserve currency allows us to play the game differently than every other country. After we became the world reserve currency, we turned around and told all these countries, hey, you know how our dollar, we said it was backed by gold. Yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, hey, so our dollar yeah. has all this like strength behind it. We're a healthy, strong country. Ah, let's print 10 trillion, you know, and the rest of the world can't do anything about it. They just have to stand there and take it. So they're they're not liking it very much. What would you classify the threat of like the Chinese yuan uh, taking the world reserve from the U.S. dollar? I, I think the you'd you'd have to see an entire overhaul of the Chinese uh, government infrastructure system. Right now, there's not enough transparency, and I don't know that there will there will be as long as there's communist rule in China. Right. So until you can get more transparency, which would probably mean the end of the Communist Party, I don't. What are the chances of that? I would say pretty low, um, but then you read like Ray Dalio, and he's like, and he's just, oh yeah, the Chinese Chinese economy is going to be the biggest in the world, new world, world reserve currency. And sometimes I read his stuff, and I'm like, what is he seeing that I'm not, or the rest of us aren't seeing? And then also, is there upside for him in that happening? Because it seems like I don't know. Sometimes I I struggle to find the line between people who are involved at that level predicting something happening versus almost like a complex pump and dump scheme where it's like they want that to happen, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that I think that dilemma exists when you're talking about people at Dalio's level of, you know, at one time, I think he had the largest hedge fund in the world. And, you know, when you've got that much money at play, um, we don't know what all investments he has in China and what, you know, he might, he might want to 
use his PR ability to try to shore up his investments there. That would, you know, it's not an uncommon tactic or, or strategy. I mean, and, and markets re- react to that. I mean, look at what you're talking about uh, Twitter and Bitcoin. I mean, look at what happens when Musk sends a tweet about Bitcoin. I mean, geez, it can, it can have a huge fluctuation in the price. So I, I think there's, I think there's a lot of tension between China and the U.S. China would love to be in that position, but I think we're more likely to see a, another world war before we see the U.S. lose the reserve currency. Like kinetic or economic? Because I feel like it feels like we've sort of been in an economic world war for a while here. Yeah, kind of Cold War style. So I don't know that if there's another world war that it's going to be fought with, you know, boots on the ground and, and, and guns and stuff. If you're talking about the U.S. and China going to war, because there's almost some sort of mutual destruction that that would be assured. So uh, I don't know. That's probably beyond my scope of expertise to speculate on that, but I don't know what would happen there. I think it's really interesting what's happening with COVID and the supply chain problems. And I think you're seeing a little bit of decoupling here from the United States and China. A lot of people bringing manufacturing, you know, back to North America. So be interesting to see what happens. You know, but one of the things you mentioned earlier about regulation and and kind of rate of change. Are you familiar with the Singularity University? I've heard of it, but I'm not super familiar, no. Yeah, they're a really interesting group about kind of, you know, predicting change. And they've got a lot of really almost scary work when you look at the future. And I I was at a meeting with with one of the guys from, from Singularity. And he said, you know, most of us can't handle what the natural rate of change would be. And so he said, instead of having this exponential rate of change curve in most areas, whether it's currency that we're talking about or, or, or you know, autonomous driving or whatever else it might be, he said, you know, what happens is the government comes in with regulation and it, it like stunts that growth curve. So you end up with a slower, more linear rate of change than you do an exponential rate of change mostly due to regulation. So I thought that was really interesting and kind of tied back into something you were saying there. Yeah. Speaking on the same topic of regulation, I think it's been eye-opening for me to talk with people. Like You can tell when you're talking to somebody whose only exposure is the crypto market versus somebody who has a wide array of exposure into policy, taxation, the security markets. Because a lot of times, people who are singularly in crypto, they don't want any regulation. But then the people who have a wider exposure are like, well, hold on a minute. Like, regulation's quite advantageous to protect from thievery and theft and like all of these different schemes and scams. And I think that there is a healthy, happy medium in terms of regulation. And I'm not, I'm not one of these guys who's like, how do I pay zero dollars in taxes? I think that for, and I might, I'm probably like your perfect client actually. I want to minimize the stupid like the stupidity tax of like not knowing how to set your assets or your state up so that I'm paying the right amount and I'm not going to jail. But at the same time, business owners who employ people, usually your people that are over eight, 10, $12 million a year, they've got employees and they're employing a lot of people and jobs and things like that. And it's just, it's sad to watch a political party be like, we're going to tax these, these mofos to death. And then you have layoffs and all of these, it's like, at what point is it like, bro, how can people not see that they're cutting off the tree that they're sitting on? You know, to me, it's like kind of silly. Yeah, 
I mean, uh, not to get political, but it's almost like, hey, if you're the one voting for the people that raise taxes, then you should lose your ability to complain about raising taxes. So it's like if you're voting for the people who want to raise your taxes, then you should be the first one to sign up and write the check. Right. And I feel like sometimes that's not the that's not the case. But, uh, you know, I think part of what you just said, the, the politicians you know, I spent five years doing lobbyist work for a couple of PACs on tax legislation. And I can tell you, I think the number one thing that everybody on Capitol Hill cares about is re-election. And when they realize, hey, I'm going to go raise taxes, the challenge is this, that the small minority of people that are making all the political contributions are not how you win an election. You win an election based on volume and votes. The problem is to run an election successfully, it costs a lot of money. So you need you need the masses to vote for you to win, but you also might need, I don't know, depending on what race you're in, 20 million, 50 million, a billion dollars to win the race. So where are you going to get the money? So the, the politicians have to play this balancing act of, well, I can't really make all the people giving me the money I need to run a successful campaign mad. But then I have to try to get the masses to alternate a vote for me so I can get elected. And, and, and that's that's kind of where the politicians end up uh, caught, you know. So you know, look at what happened. They said, they said, hey, let's have a billionaire tax. And what did Musk do? He's like, look, I don't take a salary. I don't pay tax. He's like, the only way I pay tax you can't is tax I them. sell stock. It's an education issue more than – I. well, I say it's two issues. It's – it's misaligned incentives in Washington, and then it's an education issue in America. And when you add these two things together, we're in a weird impasse where there's not a lot of ways through, especially when there's like, you know, like, man, I'm not a political spokesperson, but when you got Trump on Twitter, who's just making everything like combative all the time, people won't even talk about their differences. And it's like, you know, at some point we have to reset this conversation around what's best for you, what's best for me, because I think a politician who just wants to get reelected is like they're not going to make the right decision. They can't make no. like, you know, meritocratic decisions. And at the same time, when you have like the general American civilian who doesn't understand that you can't tax someone who doesn't make any money, <laughs> it, we, we have an impasse like there's no crossover. And so I think it's an education issue. That's why we need more people like you to just hop on and share their political viewpoints and then just take the beating. Yeah. Just go for it. I mean, well, I think it's a good combo, right? You've got a lot of reach. You've got like that's why I'm so excited about the, you know, the wealth mastermind that you're building is because I, I totally agree. I think as a country, we're somewhat financially illiterate. And and financial literacy has got to improve. I mean, think about it. Like just imagine that those successful owners we're taking a lot of income and we're paying a lot of tax to begin with. But whether they are, they aren't, you're not just going to go to the owner of a company and say, I'm going to take 10% of your money and think they're just going to say, well, okay, I'll eat it. What's going to happen? The employees don't get raises. The employees get overworked now to make up for, we got to shrink staff. We got to raise prices. Okay. Who's going to pay the increased price? The consuming public, right? So it's like it gets passed down. And that that's where the literacy part is like, you know, it's it's the same thing whether you're, you take any of these issues, 
minimum wage issue. It's like, okay, we just raised all the cost of the business, which is going to raise all the prices, which is going to make the purchasing power, the new wage, what it was before. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Anything else that you have like kind of isolated in terms of like, here's a risk or a threat or something to watch out for in the political or tax viewpoint that you would say people need to pay attention to this date and this issue? Well, I I think we'll have some new legislation that'll probably pass sometime between now and the end of the year. So in the next three weeks, that'll become effective likely in in January. And and depending on what gets passed, uh, it'll change the game a little bit. I think what we were looking at six months ago, we were expecting major game changers that were going to have dramatic impacts. And it seems like every week that goes by, that continues to get watered down. So, you know, honestly, one of the things I would share that I think is just for people not to lose sight of is like when they when you when you go off, like you said, to an extreme of like, I want to be totally disconnected from the government. I want to I want to pay zero taxes whatsoever. And and, and you, you take this extreme position. Don't forget, most people that are wealthy in this country, investments like the markets and real estate and everything else. That's just to stay wealthy, to maintain your purchasing power, you know, to, to, to keep up with inflation and produce cash flow and, and these other things. But your, your wealth is going to be created in your business. And I think sometimes maybe just the sensationalism in our country, people can get drawn into all this other stuff that takes them away from the thing that is actually going to change their life, which is investing in themselves and in their business that's going to really create wealth. That's what's going to change their life. You know, because like if, if you take somebody that's making um, a million bucks a year and I come in and I do some tax work and I save them a hundred grand, how like, did that change their life? No, got them like an extra month's paycheck, you know? So, I mean, let's not lose focus of like, what's going to really change your life, your family's life. It's going to be investing in yourself and your business. That's where your, your, your true wealth is going to get created. Yeah, 100%. Uh, man, I'd love to get you on one of the sessions for OC, Outside of Circle. It's the, the mastermind crew. Everybody in there, it's funny uh, because coming from the marketing world, like people aren't used to us actually vetting people's financials. <laughs> like, usually, it's funny because people have gotten like upset because it's like people have to make a certain amount of money and we vet their financials. So it's a really good group of people that I think would really benefit from just having a combo with you. We can probably send you some, some really good business as well, but thanks for being on. Thanks for taking the time and uh, we'll have you back on the show. I'll get you connected with uh, OC so we can do a training for them after. And then if anybody listening to this is interested in your services, what you do, is it just Jeff's, uh, how do you say your last? Soha? Soha. Soha. There you go. Yeah, it's just jeffsoha.com. You know, my email is jeff at jeffsoha.com. I built a financial firm and then sold it uh, earlier this year. And so I've just been kind of launching this new practice of, of really giving it away. I, I love doing stuff like this and just telling people like, hey, let's increase that financial literacy. Like, let's just... Let's get everybody to understand and 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 just give it away and say, here you go. Like, what you know? Let me help you. I, I give you lots of information. The the secret sauce isn't the information, so we need to make it more available. Hundred percent. This has been amazing. We'll connect after. Thanks for the time. A good time. Hundred percent. We'll talk soon. See you, man.